Welcome to the Bully Pulpit from the University of Southern California Center for the Political Future. Our podcast brings together America's top politicians, journalists, academics, and strategists from across the political spectrum for discussions on hot-button issues where we respect each other and respect the truth. We hope you enjoy these conversations. Welcome to those of you here, and welcome to people who are joining us on Zoom or on Facebook. I'm Bob Shrum, the director of the Center for the Political Future here at USC Dornsife. We're here for the next edition of our podcast, The Bully Pulpit. We'll have a discussion with our guests for about 40 minutes and then open this up to questions from our audience. First, let me introduce our very special group of guests. Jessica Lal, starting at the end of the table, is the president and CEO of the Central City Association, an advocacy group focused on enhancing downtown LA's vibrancy and increasing economic opportunity in the region. We're thrilled that Jessica is joining us as our Barbara Boxer Fellow this fall to lead a study group. Elon Carr served as the U.S. Special Envoy to monitor and combat anti-Semitism during the Trump administration. He was also a deputy district attorney in Los Angeles County, a decorated officer in the United States Army Reserve, and a one-time quite interesting candidate for Congress. We are thrilled that he, too, will be joining the center as our 2022 Pollock Foundation fellow. Our next fellow, Noelia Rodriguez, served as press secretary and director of communications to First Lady Laura Bush as deputy mayor for Dick Reardon, and she's currently the chief of staff at Metrolink, Southern California's regional rail system. Ira Reiner, another of our fellows this fall, head of the world's largest local prosecutor's office as the 39th district attorney of Los Angeles for eight years. He also served as L.A. City attorney, L.A. City controller, L.A. City fire commissioner, and president and CEO of the L.A. Homeland Security Council. Last but far from least, let me introduce Maria Salinas, who's president and CEO of the Los Angeles Area Chamber of Commerce, the largest business organization in L.A. County. Like all of our fellows, she, too, will be leading a study group this fall. I'm going to start off with this question. You're all going to come at this from different perspectives. But what is your assessment of the midterm elections? Republicans were predicting a red tsunami. But Democrats and a number of analysts and pollsters see that wave receding, especially after the reversal of Roe v. Wade and the nomination of Republican Senate candidates that even Mitch McConnell has described as weak. What's your take? And we can begin at either end. You want to start, Jessica? My take is, and I think we were talking about this before, that the Roe decision, the overturn of Roe has definitely shifted the midterms and where we're going. I think Democrats see life now in terms of not losing total control of Congress. Um, I think we're seeing really a reaction to when the court takes a position that isn't popular with the vast majority of Americans. And I'll let my colleagues chime in. Don't want to dominate here. I think it will be a red wave. The question is, what kind of red wave? I mean, I think it is highly, highly likely that the House will flip Republican. It's not certain by any stretch, but highly likely. Whether the Senate will flip, I think that's a very close call and not clear at all. I think it could remain as it is. It could flip. And even the Democrats could gain a seat. So let's focus on the House. I mean, the House will likely flip. The question is, by what margin? What's the number? And everyone is going to parse that out and say, okay, well, it was less than what we, you know, less than what was expected. Therefore, it's really, you know, less of a Republican victory. Some will say, well, but, you know, Republicans will say, well, it's, it's, it's a victory because it flipped. But really, it is really a question of what will be 
a stunning number and what won't be a stunning number. I mean, the fact of the matter is it's the it's the right year for Republican wave. It's midterms, it's presidential administration. President's numbers are horrifically low in terms of popularity. And for all of those reasons, it should be a Republican wave. The question is how big, and that's what everyone's going to be fighting over and spinning extensively. I'll take a hand at this. Thanks, Bob. And thank you for hosting us for this bully pulpit. You know, Ira and I did a bully pulpit a couple of months ago, which now seems like an eternity ago. It was literally days after Roe was overturned. And there was a lot of conversation then about what was going to happen in the midterms. And of course, in politics and campaigns, we know that four months, five months is an eternity. And numbers aside, and I you know respect Elon's opinion on this. When it comes to the election, there's still time. Although the Democrats have the wind at their backs right now, anything can happen after Labor Day. And quality of life issues are the things that people vote on. What does this mean for me? We've had a summer of high gas prices, or we started the summer with with families unable to get baby formula. Then we had issues overturned. And then just the economy in general is something that people think about when they go to the ballot box. This year being different midterms and the election in Los Angeles because it'll be the first time that the mayoral campaign, mayoral election will be at the same time as the general midterms. There will be a double, a double dosage of opinions at the ballot box. So stay tuned. It's going to be an interesting semester with the fellows talking about all of these things in our study groups. An old sports uh, journalist uh, once said, and I expect that uh, Bob and I are the only people here of a certain age. They can recall the name of Damon Runyon. But this uh, journalist once wrote that uh, the race does not always go to the swift, nor the battle always go to the strong. But that's the way to bet. Well, uh, historically, the House of Representatives always goes rather largely to the party out of power in terms of the presidency. Well, history does not always repeat itself, but that's the way to bet, which is to say that the probability, more than a probability, a very high probability is that the House of Representatives will flip from Democrat to Republican. Typically, historically, it's about 30 seats. Well, right now, the Democrats have, what is it, four or five, I believe it's four seats, majority Well, you can just see that the chance of the House not flipping are problematic. Well, but even long shots sometimes win. And so it is not impossible that the Democrats could hold on to the House. But there are two X factors. The first one is abortion, abortion rights. But the X factor there is turnout. Will there be a sufficiently large or I should say larger turnout by those who support abortion rights for it to be a game changer. Well, whether it'll be enough to be a game changer is the X factor. And the second X factor is Donald Trump, who is always an X factor. If he becomes the center issue of the campaign, not a referendum on the administration, President Biden, then That could change everything, notwithstanding the historical record. But having said that, you have to circle back to the historical record is that the party out of power, that is the Republicans, figure to pick up 30 seats. They only need to pick up four, despite the two X factors that could change things. 
highly unlikely. Maria? First of all, thank you for having me here. I'm excited to be here with this uh, distinguished panel. I think Roe was a big uh, shot in the arm for the Democrats. I happened to be in Washington, D.C. a couple of days before the decision came down. And certainly from speaking with congressional members to staffers to administration, just all across in D.C., it almost seemed inevitable about this red wave. And I have seen how those same folks have now feel like there's an opportunity to get a different message out in terms of what the Democrats would stand for with, with regard to the decision. So I think it's, uh, you can't count them out, but, uh, you know, we still got a couple of weeks to go. And I think there's still a lot of messaging that, uh, will be happening from a lot of these members and, uh, we'll, we'll see where it ends up. It'll be definitely a very interesting conversation to have as we watch it through. None of you comment on my reference to Mitch McConnell saying that there were some weak Republican Senate candidates and he was worried about that. Anybody have a take on that? Well, yes. In terms of the Senate, uh, I don't think there's any question that that gives the Democrats an edge that they didn't have. In the House, there are a few similar bad candidates, if we can so characterize them, that uh, are there because of the Trump followers who dominated the Republican primary and are weak general uh, election candidates. But the number of such candidates in House races, I do not think are large enough to overcome the historical trend of about 30 seats to change. In the Senate, we're only dealing with one or two that could be critical that will change the balance or not in a Senate that is now 50-50. You know, Elon talked about spinning, and I don't know whether you're doing it on purpose, Ira, but when you set that goal of 30 seats changing, yeah, a lot of people in Washington now think it's going to be 10 or 12 seats, and Republicans take the House. Well, Bob, Elon, I, do you think it'll be big? Um, I think it will be uh, uh, pretty big. Yeah, I do. I think it's interesting. You know, Roe really is a big question mark. And, you know, one of two things might happen. I mean, this really might exercise... You know, those who are very, very concerned about losing, you know, losing abortion rights. It also could be much ado about little. I mean, you know, okay, Roe was overturned. The, the earth is continuing to spin on its, on its axis. And, uh, and okay, you know, now, you know, now there's a, a debate. And by the way, the debate is quite healthy. You know, now we have legislative bodies saying, okay, well, you know, should there be abortion rights protected, you know, up to a certain point? I think, you know, another game changer is um, what we saw in Kansas, for goodness sake. I mean, when you've got a referendum in a deeply red, deeply conservative state that is resoundingly rejected. That was a referendum, for those of you who didn't follow, it was a referendum to outlaw abortion, basically. And it, it was soundly defeated in an incredibly deep red state. And so I think that gives a lot of people pause about, well, overturning Roe v. Wade is a legal decision, right? And it's a constitutional decision. But that really does not, you know, foreclose anything in terms of what state legislatures might do. And if, if Kansas is any indication, then, you know, then I don't know, this might take the wind out of the sails of those who fear, okay, well, that's it, you know, back to all of the, you know, you've heard the scare tactics and, you know, code hangers and people being put in jail for murder and all of that. Well, it doesn't look like that. It doesn't look like that's anywhere 
nearly likely to happen, even in deeply conservative states. And so people might say, okay, what's the big fuss about? Okay, now we don't have a constitutional right to an abortion, but we're still going to have this protected under state law. Now, I'm not saying that's what will happen, but you know, there are two sides of this, and it's really, it's a big question mark, and we don't know how this is going to play and whether the overturning of Roe really will, you know, so dramatically change turnout. I'll let Maria and then Jessica come in on this and Noelia, if she wants. I do have to say, as I sit here asking you to predict things, the one thing I would not have predicted, say, four or five years ago, would be that abortion rights would be protected in Ireland and not in large parts of the United States. So, Maria? Yeah, one comment. Let's not count out women and the role that women are going to have in this election. The women, especially women of color, who have seen, uh, have historically been on the outs when it comes to medical care. They're looking at this from a healthcare perspective. And I think, like I said earlier, I think as we get closer to the election, we will be seeing the galvanization, I think, of women across the country. So I think it'd be something to watch. Yeah, and I'd just like to build off that. I think with abortion rights, I think we're seeing maybe a well, a not well thought out strategy come into play with women's health care and things that we're seeing transpire that are having an impact on candidates and how they're presenting themselves. And I think if you take a look just at commercial ads for some of those Senate congressional candidates, they're sort of backtracking now their messaging on maybe being super pro, you know, overturning Roe as we see the consequences for women real time play out. Um, so I think it's already having an impact, right? I think the context of is the candidate weak or strong is all about the environment that they're operating in. And we're starting to see that environment change. And um, I think, you know, women are highly concerned, but I also think people who are LGBTQ, who fear that their rights may be taken away or in jeopardy are going to be very active or remains to be seen how they're going to actually turn out. But I think we're seeing candidates already shifting their message to maybe temper it to a more centrist point of view in these in these elections. Think the way Leon and then I'm. Thank you. Yes, I was going to say, um, similar to what Maria just raised, not just the women vote when it comes to Roe being overturned, but certain age ranges of women, because there are some of us, and I hate to date myself, but can remember when Roe became law in this land and I was in school younger than you, but it was very vivid in my mind about the shift in our nation's culture and access to health services, not just, you know, abortion. And before that, it didn't happen overnight. Roe did not just become the law. And then the next day people were, you know, going to take care of the services that they, that they needed. It didn't happen that way. There was a definite transition. And I think women of a certain age remember that, remember what it was like to get that benefit, to get that right. And now to have it taken away, even though at the state level, it's a different constitution, if you will, they still remember the evolution and what that meant in terms of having access to something in a healthy manner. And so the mindset of a certain demographic is really key to this election, I believe. Ira, I think it's a large mistake to underestimate the intensity of the feelings of uh, a large segment of the population, largely women, not entirely, on the issue of abortion rights. It is not an issue that just exists among 
uh, melange of other issues. The question, though, is that going back to the uh, historical record of about 30 odd seats that changed in the midterm elections, is it enough to create a large enough turnout so that it will be a game changer? But that is very different from downplaying the intensity of feelings of people that are supporting abortion rights that was suddenly upset with uh, the Roe v. Wade reversal. In, in response to uh, what uh, Bob, you uh, said that or drew the difference there where I talked about a 30 uh, votes uh, switch in the House and most people in Washington are predicting 10 or 15. My point, Bob, was that historically it's been 30. In the House, there's only a margin of about four. So it, the change with these X factors that I talked about, perhaps abortion, turnout, perhaps the X factor of Trump doing God only knows what that could affect the election and take the attention away from inflation and, and the like, that that 30 number can go way down and still be well above the mere four that are needed to change. So, yeah, I would expect you want a prediction. I don't think it'll be the historical 30. I am afraid I say that as a Democrat. I am afraid that it will be that mere four uh, is in great jeopardy. Yeah, well, the exceptions in the last century, FDR in 1934, Democrats actually gained seats in the House and the Senate. And after the Cuban Missile Crisis in 62, I think Democrats lost one seat in the House and gained two seats in the Senate. And then after 9-11, in the midst of the run up to the war in Iraq, Republicans defied these trends. I think this has been a very respectful discussion of the likely impact of Roe. And in fact, that leads me to my next question before I get into more predicted. Here at the center, we're committed to doing our part, and we don't have a solution that we can solve this, to bridging divides and encouraging dialogue that respects one another and respects the truth. And at times, it seems, on the other hand, that we have what my co-director, Mike Murphy, has described as and I'm right in your evil mentality in today's political cultures. What are your thoughts on getting along with people with whom you have big disagreements? How can we keep conversations respectful and productive, or is that era past? Noelle, you want to start? As you're asking the question, Bob, I'm just reflecting on my own career, and I, and I, I feel proud that in my own little slice of, of the universe. I've actually lived this because I started in politics in 1994 when uh, I went to become press secretary for Dick Reardon in Los Angeles. And he had only been mayor for about eight months at that point. And I had never been in politics. I had a lifelong Democrat working for the last Republican mayor in Los Angeles. And at that time, there was what is now known as probably an extinct species. There were about three or four Republicans on the LA City Council. And On the bigger scale, Bill Clinton was in office, Rudy Giuliani was mayor in New York, Daly in Chicago, and Dick Reardon in Los Angeles. And those three mayors worked together with the Clinton administration on very important issues that affected all Americans, no matter the party. It wasn't about party politics. And of course, I'm sounding very naive. Everybody had their agenda politically, of course. But the bottom line is is that they worked together together on behalf of Americans across both aisles. And I learned under that model. So to be here at the Center for the Political Future to talk about those things really makes me feel not only proud, but I'm excited about it because it gives me hope that we're going to be able to restore some semblance of being able to have 
differences, but have the ability to debate those differences in a way that people walk away feeling that they learn something from each other after their exchanges. And for the record, I was still a Democrat when I worked, went to work at the White House for the Republican president. And speaking of Republicans, here we go, <laughs> or Republican historians. So, you know, I think I'm kind of the person that personifies the bipartisanship of, of the center. And uh, one more thing for the record, I'm no longer a Democrat. I'm now an independent. And a lot of my friends who were Republicans or were Democrats are now independent because it feels more comfortable there in terms of debating issues that affect every one of us, Republican or Democrat. I hope that answers your question, Bob. Yeah. Anybody else want to weigh in on this? Elon, you and I disagree about a lot of things. Do we? I think, yeah. I will tell you, I, I bet, Bob, and this is really part of my answer, I bet we disagree about a lot less than we might think, than one might think. You know, I actually wrote an op-ed about this in 2016 after the presidential election, which was, a, you know, a new low in terms of the national discourse and the, the bilious, caustic animosity that is on public display everywhere in the country, and it's only gotten worse. And what I said then is, and it's, again, it's worse today, but what I said then is is that this mood we're in isn't just unpleasant, it's dangerous. It's actually dangerous for the republic, dangerous for any republic. And so I really think that this is a key issue. Now, about lifelong Democrats, I'm, I'm a lifelong Republican. I'm married to a lifelong Democrat. And I will tell you that my wife and I agree on probably 85% of the issues. I mean, honestly, and I don't think that's unusual. Now, okay, she's not a, you know, it's not far left, but Still, I don't think that's very unusual. And I think when Americans talk about issues, well, look, I actually have data. I mean, Bob mentioned my congressional race. I outperformed Republican registration in a very, very Democratic liberal district by 18 points. I outperformed registration by 18 points. People say, well, how did you do that? You know, the truth is, I don't think it's because I'm so special. I talked about issues. I didn't talk about brands and slogans and party. I said, look, you know, let's talk about what we all want. I mean, we all want a lot of the same things. We might disagree on some policy prescriptions and paths to getting there, but, but really there is, there is vast, vast swaths of agreement between Americans from coast to coast. And, you know, like a marriage, if you focus on your disagreements, every marriage has them. If that's what you focus on, you know, the marriage ain't going to last. But when you focus on, on what you agree on, you find that the disagreements become, I'm not going to say unimportant, but certainly surmountable. And I think that really is the key. The key is that we've got to, first of all, listen and respect each other. B, we have to approach, you know, we have to approach policy disputes with an open mind and with intellectual rigor and with critical thinking, something that is sorely needed in our country today. And you know what? We may not at the end of a genuine and open-minded debate come to agreement, but that's okay because the method will breed respect and cooperation. And at the end of the day, we're not going to agree on everything, but respect and cooperation is absolutely, absolutely critical. So, you know, I hope we, we can rescue ourselves from, from this, uh, really terrible state of affairs. And, you know, when, when you all called me about, about joining this program, you know, I said, are you kidding? I'd love to because I believe in the mission of what the Dornsife Center is doing, and that is to bring critical thinking back to our public discourse, to bring respect back to American policy debates, and hopefully uh, pave the way for a future where we, uh, you know, come to remember that we actually kind of like each other, and that will be a, a, a future worthy of our children. Yeah, my co-director, Mike Murphy, and I just have to specify, agree on about 10% of things. <laughs> <laughs> I think we're going to do a little bit more predicted 
uh, and then turn maybe to some, a couple of questions about your background and what you're going to do in your study groups. Mike, you want to take it away? Yes, thank you, Bob. And again, my apologies. I had a little trouble with L.A. traffic, so it's a good pivot to local issues. And, and I will say to reinforce what you said, I'm a lifelong Republican and my wife is a lifelong Democrat. So one of the ways we celebrate that is I volunteer in the spirit of bipartisanship to mail both of our absentee ballots. (laughs) Now, I'm a Republican, so what she doesn't know is I never actually mail her. So let's let's keep that quiet. No tweeting or I'm in big trouble. No, I'm I'm kidding. We we actually do it that way. So Los Angeles, huge election for mayor. Also sheriff's election. We can talk a little bit about the county attorney thing. So I'll I'll throw it to the panel. The conventional wisdom is that Karen Bass is running away with it. But I'm going to just put out a little something to help frame the discussion. And we have experienced people here in L.A. politics. We have a former mayoral candidate and a well-known county political expert here of Ira who's been on the ballot once successfully himself. I've seen the secret internal polling for both Caruso and Bass, and neither of them have it wider than eight points. So there's 12, 15 stuff in the paper. The real race, depending on whose poll you believe, is five to eight with Bass ahead in both situations. So with that, little update from the expensive polls, not the one the cheap newspaper publishers get the low bid on. Uh, <laughs> who wants to start? Ira, you should take us on a tour of L.A. politics here. Okay. On the mayoral race, we were talking about this earlier. I think the Caruso campaign made a strategic a mistake before the, their campaign began. Uh, they saw homelessness and law and order as the two dominant issues in the campaign. Well, they, they weren't, and they, they should have recognized a reality there. The single greatest predictor of a voter's preference is party affiliation. And that's true everywhere, not just the city of Los Angeles. Now, in Los Angeles, only 13% of the registered voters are Republican. And what the Caruso campaign should have done strategically before the campaign even began is to put that as the number one issue in their campaign. Not homelessness, not law and order. Not that those issues are to be put to the side as unimportant, but until and unless they could get over that hurdle of being tagged as a Republican, he has, as a practical matter, little or no chance of winning an election in the city of Los Angeles. Karen Bass, in the primary, was successful in tagging Caruso as a Republican. And he's got that tagged and stamped on him. Now, I don't see how, between now and the general election, he gets that off. That's like a uh, a lot of ink that people get on their body. It's awful hard to get it off. I don't think that he can escape having been tagged as a Republican. And that's going to be the issue. There are a lot of other things to talk about, but that's the issue that is going to be controlling. Jessica, what's your take on that? I agree about the polling, and you you said it. I think it's much closer than people uh, imagine, and I think, as Maria said earlier, or Noelia, uh, we have a long ways to go, right? We've never seen a, a time frame between a primary and the general this this long, this wide. One candidate has immense resources, 
to do what Ira just said, which is sort of untag himself with an issue. I think obviously the Dobbs decision impacted the importance of being tagged a Republican pro-life. Um, so I think he's definitely, you know, has to do more and is doing more to shift that. But I think both I think there's a lot of opportunity and a lot of room for voters still. A lot of people I talk to don't feel like they really have a sense of who Karen Bass is on a personal level or Rick Caruso. So I think we're going to have to see the candidates actually getting out, doing the hand to hand, knocking on doors, going to events, speaking directly to people on the issues that they care about, whether that's coming out of COVID and small business relief, women's issues, access to affordable health care, education. So I think those are going to be the issues that really resonate with voters. And I think whoever prevail in this race is going to do the better job and doing that legwork of getting out there, talking to people, relating to them, following up with them. I think we could speculate on airwaves and what the newspapers are writing about. But I think at the end of the day, it's going to come back to that connection and then who can actually turn out their vote. Um, I think we saw a lot of new tactics uh, being implemented in terms of ballots and turning ballots in during the primary. And so I think it's a whole new world in that sense. And whoever's going to activate their voters to get out on election day and turn in their ballots in advance is going to prevail. Noelia, you, you know your way around city politics here. What do you think? I think Jessica is absolutely right. The retail politics and the word connecting, connecting with people is what's going to do it, I think, at, at, especially at the, in, in the local elections. People don't really know, I don't think, who Rick Caruso is. They know about Karen Bass because of all of the years that she's been in elected office, but they don't really know who Rick Caruso is. And we were talking about this before we came out here about, you know, switching the party politics, which really hasn't helped in this, even though, as Ira says, it's all about the, the party. And then, of course, with the Dobbs decision, he could have gotten out ahead of that before it happened. I mean, certainly we knew it was coming because of the leaks and it would have given him an opportunity to frame himself and have him do it directly as opposed to having the opponent cast him as somebody who's just doing what's expediently right for his campaign. So there's still a lot of time. The margin is, as Mike says, it's single digits. And there's still a lot of time, even though it feels like there's not, there is after Labor Day is when we're going to start the labor really going into the campaigns. I just, and then why don't you wrap this up? I just toss in one thing as somebody who's like Bob run a lot of campaigns over time. And I display, I'm, I'm for Caruso. He's a friend of mine. I worked for his company in the past. This is a titanic battle of two 65% opinions. 65 is actually a little higher than that. Percent of likely voters in this mayor's race want significant change in direction. They really want to take a broom to city hall. 65% of them are Democrats who want to go murder the first Republican they can get their hands on. So it's kind of a jump ball between those two things. And the Dobbs decision maneuvered Caruso into a place where that you got to pick a tribe here. Like Ira says, between Republican or Democrat, he's been boxed into that corner. So the question is, can he restart and get it back on change versus more of the same in City Hall where she's very vulnerable? in the polling. They don't know much about her either. But right now, it's, it's basically a Republican hunt. And uh, in this city, keep in mind, in the Democratic primary in the city of L.A., people often confuse the city and the county. Just the city of L.A., Bernie Sanders beat Joe Biden in the last presidential primary. So it is an aggressively progressive partisan electorate. And so Rick's got some work to do to get the message of everybody saying back to the other stuff. But the other stuff has a lot of power. So the next 60 days are going to be really interesting. And it's going to be down to can Rick restart or not. My comment was going to be to build on what has already been shared. 
you know, it's been a sleepy summer for politics. And I do agree that after Labor Day, we are going to see an uptick in this particular race. Yet some of the polling, not yours, some of the polling has almost called it as game over. And I don't think we're in that scenario here. I think there is still a lot to learn about both candidates. Um, the, the chamber uh, has endorsed uh, Rick Caruso, but I agree with the comments that you made, Noelia, that there are still people that don't really know him. And I think that'll be one of the things to keep top of mind for his campaign is making sure that uh, his message is out in terms of who he is. Totally agree. Quickly, the uh, sheriff. Hey, hey, Elon, you want to- oh, yes. Yeah, well, you know, I actually I actually very much agree uh, with what's been said. And I, I would only add that don't underestimate the ability of people to, you know, switch, switch to a new way of thinking or even to a new party. Now, again, this is not a partisan election. Yes, people can be tagged as Republican and Democrat, but but, you know, there's no D or R on the ballot. And that's significant, number one. But number two, also, you know, when people are unhappy, and they are, I mean, you know, people are unhappy, and it's, and and the polls show that, and there's real deep dissatisfaction with the way things are going, and there's angst, there's real fear, there's angst. And look, I mean, I'll tell you, I, you know, I've I've voted for Democrats in in my career at all levels, because if I think it's a better candidate, I, you know, I've, I've done that in the past. And so I think, yes, and I, things are more, more polarized today than they were in the past. There's no question about it. But when things get miserable enough, people are, I mean, look at San Francisco, the three school board. Who would have thought that San Francisco would recall three, you know, hard left school board members and their DA? And so, you know, I think this is a, this is a strange time. Obviously, Karen Bass has an advantage. We all see the polling, but I wouldn't, I think all sorts of things can happen. Uh, the, you know, when you've got an electorate that is, that is deeply concerned, afraid and, and unhappy, all sorts of things can happen. American democracy has reached a moment of existential uncertainty with problems bigger than any one administration or headline. My name is James Walner, and I host the podcast Politics in Question with Lee Drutman and Julia Azari. On our show, we discuss how our political institutions are failing us, and we consider different ideas for fixing them. If you like this episode, you might enjoy Politics in Question. You can find that episode and the rest of our show on Spotify, Apple, Stitcher, and at our website, politicsinquestion.com. We have a controversial sheriff here. We think we're still going to have the same sheriff or not. I don't know. I mean, I haven't paid a lot of attention to the race. Jessica? I think Luna, I think Luna wins. I think there was a very crowded race. I think Villanueva had his base. And I think the majority of the other candidates, their supporters are going to align behind Luna. That's what my crystal ball says. Anybody think it won't be Sheriff Luna? Put me down as un- unknowing here. I have actually a question for you, Mike, whoever else would like to answer. Regarding the sheriff's race, you know, he's lost. He's definitely losing momentum, the current sheriff. Would people vote for Luna and then to compromise, vote for Rick Caruso? Because, you know, now they're on the issue of crime. Do you know what I'm asking? They, They might. I mean, in the top three issue thing, what the top three really are, at least from the polls I've seen, are... Again, I was got a good point. It's not about the issues if, if people think Rick is Kevin McCarthy's right hand. Yeah. 
because then the partisan thing takes over and the ears close. But if he can restart, remember, he is a Democrat, uh, or at least claim one. And I agree if I read that was not sold hard enough. I personally would advise them to go independent because I think the Democrat thing looks like a big step. But it's done. He did vote for Jerry Brown. He did vote for Joe Biden. He did write a lot of checks to pro-choice politicians, including Karen Bass, who never said, oh, I'm so offended. I'm sending your money back. <laughs> he was pro-choice enough for them. And he is pro-choice. But to your question, crime's really the number three issue. Number one is homelessness, but the homelessness issue breaks in two ways. There's some people who have a view that it's a law and order thing. Other people want more treatment, housing, et cetera. The sleeper issue in this race, particularly for voters under 45, and I can do a poll here. How many of you think if you graduate, when you graduate from here and you, you want to get your first entry job in LA, you'll be able to afford an apartment? Yeah, it's a huge issue, cost of housing. And it's linked in people's mind to homelessness. So Rick's kind of already running on, if you believe the most optimistic Caruso poll, which is four points, he's got all the crime voters already. Because even the Republican thing, they smell tough on crime. Uh, the question is, can he connect economically on the price of housing? And he can, can he be seen as a solution to homelessness that's more than just turning the cops loose? You know, they'll clear it all out tomorrow to expand into that. And that's the battleground if he can get there. So I think it, uh, Luna will just, if Luna wins, it'll be part of the tide of change stuff that could propel Caruso, even though ideologically it's, it's different. I haven't predicted anything overtly. I think Luna will win. You look at what happened in the primary. You have an incumbent sheriff who gets, what, 31, 32% of the vote. But then you have a lot of the rivals who are running against him endorsing Luna, who finished well ahead in the primary. But I want to turn to audience questions. But first, I want to give you each a chance, and Willie, you already did this in a way, to briefly tell us what your first job in politics was, what your study groups, which will begin soon, are about, and... The deadline for applying to those study groups, by the way, is tomorrow. So, Jessica, you want to start? So my first non-paid job in politics was actually as a student at USC through the UNRWA Institute. Um, I was a volunteer on Barbara Boxer's campaign. Uh, we shared office space with then-presidential candidate John Kerry. find it's come full circle as I am now the Barbara Boxer Fellow. I don't believe there was a connection there. Um, and my first paid job in politics was working for Mayor Viragosa on the business team coming out of the recession. So I was responsible really for working with small and large businesses, primarily in uh, downtown Los Angeles and Hollywood, helping them navigate government bureaucracy in the departments. It was a great learning experience. I was given the advice to stay there long enough to figure it out, but not long enough to become a bureaucrat. So leave that with you. But I'm really excited about our class, local leadership and systems change. We're really going to be evaluating, taking inventory of Los Angeles, focusing on two specific issues, housing and homelessness. So thank you for the inadvertent plug there, Mike, um, and how they're connected and how they're really setting our city up for um, the future. And so we're going to be bringing in speakers to each class from the political realm, from media to talk about how public safety is shaped in the eyes of voters. And then we're going to end with a sort of mock debate around elections. I don't want to give too much away, but I look forward to seeing those of you who are participating. Elon. Well, uh, my first job in politics was actually in 1988. I was a student uh, up at Cal, and I uh, I worked for Pete Wilson's reelection campaign. I volunteered and uh, had a fantastic time. It was eye opening and uh, and really really a thrill and exciting. And then because of my work on the campaign, I ended up having a connection and 
and then uh, did a summer internship on Capitol Hill in his office. And I handled energy and environmental policy. And we were actually able to actually effect a, a very significant uh, change in the way um, in the way uh, shipping happens off the coast of California with oil rigs and things like that. So it was a very, very exciting, taught me a lot about public policy and about campaigns. And, uh, and it was incredible. And, and I think it really opened, you know, it, it made me say, well, I, I want to, I want to make an impact and, uh, and I want to see how I can make an impact. And, you know, being in elected office is certainly, is certainly a key way to do that, but it's not the only way to do that. And so a lot of the jobs I've had and the things I've done are, has been focused on, okay, how can I, you know, make our communities better and safer and make our country stronger? And, and so that's, um, it all started there. I also, by the way, did, we, we talked about this. I did a precinct walk, uh, for a Dick Reardon's campaign, uh, back when, which was uh, a great experience as well. With regard to my, um, my study group, we'll be talking about about the world's oldest hatred, anti-Semitism, but specifically talking about it in the context of American American leadership in the world. Um, I served as as the lead diplomat for the United States on this issue, and it raises a question: Why should there be an office created in overwhelming bipartisan fashion by Congress to fight? The scourge. What is the threat that anti-Semitism poses? Not to Jews specifically, that's obvious, but what's the threat that it poses to all of us, to the very fabric of American society, to, to the idea of, of a, of a moral, uh, a moral society, a moral country? And the answer to that is actually pretty stark and pretty clear, which is why there's the position I held. And we'll be talking about why anti-Semitism is rising. It is rising across the world, including right here in the United States. We'll be talking about the ideological drivers of anti-Semitism. We'll be talking about the breeding grounds and where those effective breeding grounds of anti-Semitism are. But then we're going to talk about solutions, real solutions. You know, when you say the world's oldest hatred, you want to throw your hands up and say, okay, well, how are you? Well, I'll, I'll tell you, Mike Pompeo, my first my first day, I met with him, Secretary of State, in his office, and he first words to me, true story, he said, so you like a challenge, huh? You know, it's been around a long time. How do you beat back something so indefatigable, right, insatiable? The answer is you can, and there are specific measures that we have been undertaking and then measures we can still undertake that are remarkably effective, not only in fighting the scourge, but in fighting against hatred and bigotry uh, more generally. So I'm very excited about this group. And uh, and I think it's going to be robust and interesting and touch on a very important uh, topic that we're wrestling with today in our country. You already told us about your first job. Yes. You want to tell us about your study group? Absolutely. And thank you, Bob, for recommending the great title of my study group, which is Communications from the East Wing to the West Coast. And so my study group starts on September 7th. And I'm going to take a little bit of a different approach to looking at communications clearly at the White House and my work at, at City Hall. But I'm going to bring the topic to life and have guest speakers who actually have or continue to work in that arena. So my very first guest speaker is going to be a Secret Service agent who is the highest ranking Latino Secret Service agent in the history of the of the service. And you will ask why? Well, because what part of their responsibility is protecting the image of the presidency, no matter who is in office, because that reflects not just in America, but around the world to our allies as well as our enemies. And so that's going to be a fun conversation. Then I'll also have a historian on Eleanor Roosevelt, and she's a phenomenal speaker who will make you feel as though Eleanor is in the room. And now she's actually Hillary Clinton's historian. So she works very closely with, with that former first lady. And as we'll also talk about other first ladies. And then one of my other speakers is going to be the former chief of staff to President Bush, 41, a Herbert Walker Bush. She was his chief of staff for almost 
25 some odd years until he passed away a couple of years ago. And then we're going to wrap it up with a student who is now a student of mine when I was at Harvard. He is now a journalist for the New York Times, and he's written a book that's prominently at the center, This Too Shall Pass, which is about the transition from President Trump's administration to President Biden's administration. So you can believe that there are a lot of stories in that book if you haven't already read it. So I look forward to having students be a part of the study group to talk about both Republican and Democrats and the spectrum of how communications affects all of our lives politically and otherwise. I want to get to a couple of audience questions, but Ira, what your first job in politics was? Well, if there's a takeaway from what everybody else has said, uh, the entry into politics is to volunteer. That's it invariably your very first job. It was mine. I uh, had some friends who were environmental activists, and so I got involved with them. And what we got involved uh, doing is that the Pacific Coast Highway, or the Malibu Freeway, as it was called, uh, was part of the freeway master plans. And so the environmentalists very much wanted to have that removed from the freeway master plan. So the group of us, or only half a dozen, uh, we formed a group and we became lobbyists, a rather arrogant on our part to consider ourselves lobbyists. But we went up to Sacramento and we went down the hall and we saw every legislator. Anyhow, I don't know how much of it was because of the work we did, but the legislature enacted a bill that removed the Pacific Coast Highway proposed from the freeway master plan. And then Ronald Reagan vetoed it. But we came back the next year, did the same thing. Second time, Ronald Reagan didn't veto it. And today, you do not have a freeway running down the Malibu coast because of the work of half a dozen or so. I've given us more too much credit. There are a lot of other people, including the majority of the legislature, that had something to do with that. But uh, that's how it got started. And then... That lead led into politics. They said, well, why don't you run for city attorney? To me or my friends. The answer should have been because I had no idea what I was doing <laughs> if I were to run. But that answer never occurred to me. <laughs> so I ran and I got about 1% of the vote, which is about what I deserved. But along the course of running, you know, as you know, uh, you make presentations against different groups. Well, I had spoken before the firefighters union and apparently made a good impression and they had supported Mayor Bradley over Sam Yorty, the incumbent. Tom Bradley won. And in return for the Firefighters Union support of Bradley, he gave them three nominations for the fire commission. So I got a phone call at my office where I was practicing law asking if I wanted to be a fire commissioner. Yeah. I mean, why not? So I'm a fire commissioner. Well, one thing leads to another for one thing to another. So that's how you get involved in politics. Start out and then things start falling into place. The study group, police and prosecutorial misconduct is on its face, a very volatile subject. And I expect that everyone that comes to our discussion group is going to come to it with a point of view, a very strongly held point of view, likely. And one's point of view is usually determined by one's angle of vision. Well. I'm going to try to bring multiple points of view to the course. And I think what I bring to it are multiple angles of vision, both micro and macro. Micro that I spent 10 years in private law practice exclusively doing criminal defense work. 
That's micro. Macro is much later in uh, my career. I was the head of the district attorney's office. Well, with our tens and hundreds of thousands of cases over that eight year period, that's a macro view of it. Also, I was city attorney and as the lawyer for the city, I represented and defended the city when the city was sued because of the misconduct of police officers, most often, but not entirely because of excessive use of force. Well, as district attorney, I found myself prosecuting police officers for much the same sort of conduct that as city attorney, previously, I had to defend the city in lawsuits. So micro, macro, uh, defending and prosecuting, point of view determined by angle of vision, multiple angles of vision, multiple points of view. That's what I want to bring to this discussion group. And I hope that with the class, that's what we'll have. Maria? First job would have been volunteering, you know, almost right out of college, got very involved with the National Women's Political Caucus that did a lot of work here in the city of Los Angeles. So I can remember interviewing and working on campaigns like with Rita Walters and Ruth Galanter. And it was a great experience for me. I also got involved with a group called Hope which is Hispanas Organized for Political Equality with their Political Action Committee. And we did a lot of work in fundraising and events for Barbara Boxer. I remember doing the Latinas for Kathleen Brown when she ran for governor, Gloria Molina's campaign for supervisor. So all of that was tremendously inspirational to me. In my work today, in working with the LA Chamber, we are very much involved with our elected officials. And so I really want to thank the center for helping me put together politics for a new generation or for the next generation, excuse me. And uh, it's really going to be about looking at campaigning, looking at the world of politics through a different generation, the new generation. When we think about the workforce, we always talk about the workforce, that there's five generations in that workforce and that we need to learn how to connect with each generation a little differently. So it's almost taking that same view from a political perspective, you know, how we connect, how we reach them, how we message. My first speaker will be Nick Melboyne, who's on the LAUSD, uh, on the school board there. I'm going to be bringing in a political consultant, a council member from one of the, the cities, as well as an assembly member. And I'll have a little surprise from the mayor's office that I'm looking to confirm. <laughs> but uh, but I'm really excited at doing that and really opening the eyes of our study group to how things are happening a little differently today than maybe when I was working on Hope Pack. <laughs> so thank you. We didn't really get to a lot of audience questions because this got really fascinating and interesting. And I love these study groups. And anybody who has the opportunity to take one of these study groups should do it. It will be great. We keep them small intentionally so that people really interact with the people who are leading the study group. But I, I want to take all of these having listened to this discussion. I'll sign off and thank people for being with us either here or on Zoom and tell you that we'll see you soon for the next Bully Pulpit. Thank you for joining us on the Bully Pulpit. It helps us a lot when you subscribe and rate the show five stars wherever you get your podcasts. Follow us on Twitter at USC POL Future. That's USC POL Future. 
Follow us on Facebook and YouTube and visit our website for upcoming programs. This podcast is part of the Democracy Group.